September is Suicide Prevention Month, with lots of information on prevention coming out of places like the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. A year in, the federally-backed 988 Suicide Prevention Line has received millions of calls. But now we take a moment to celebrate how service dogs can help with the persistent problem of veteran suicide. Joining me with the details, the executive director of the Veterans Advocate Group Mission Roll Call, Cole Lyle. Mr. Lyle, good to have you back. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. And dogs, how do they actually help? I mean, service dogs are known to be good psychological. Any dog is a good psychological lift for anybody. But can they go so far as to help with suicide prevention? 100%. You know, I had my own dog. Her name was Kaya. And uh, I got her after I had tried traditional evidence-based treatments, pills and therapy from the VA that just exacerbated my symptoms. And dogs can, you know, help reduce symptoms of post-traumatic stress, but they can be an important backstop to suicide because when you get to that point and you're really in crisis, you think I'm totally alone and I don't have anybody that loves me or would miss me. And the dog is sitting there and you look at the dog and say, you know, I can't leave the dog. The dog would miss me. And on top of that, you know, they provide a sense of purpose that pills and, and therapy just frankly won't ever do. But yet people commit suicide and veterans among them. You know, we still have that persistent 22 a day or so. They have wives and children very often that they are right. leaving behind. So what's the difference between a dog, do you think? Well, you know, somebody once said that dogs and infants are the only two things on earth that can experience and express true love. And part of why somebody gets to the point of crisis might be family. It might be relationship problems or divorce. It might be a custody battle with kids. It might be any number of different things. I mean, humans can add levels of stress, even if you are very, very close to them. And dogs, you know, the worst they're going to do is maybe have an accident on your floor. And specifically when it's a trained service dog, that is highly unlikely, number one. But number two, you know, they are trained to do things like Kaya was trained to wake me up from nightmares, to stop anxiety attacks through what's called the animal assisted intervention. So I think there's a difference, right? And I think anybody that has ever owned a dog will tell you that they can be therapeutic. But, you know, somebody with a specially trained service dog that's trained to do work tasks specifically for psychiatric reasons can be exponentially more powerful. Interesting. Yeah, they say family can inflict wounds worse than the, your worst enemy could ever dream of, I suppose. <laughs> That's what Clarence Darrow used to say, the uh, late lawyer. And the PAWS Act helped yeah. expedite the supplying of the right kind of trained dogs to veterans. That's been in effect since 2018. And has that helped? Well, the, the bill actually passed in 2021. I think the original uh, or the compromised version was introduced in 2018. It's a pilot program that provides five different sites across the country to, to prove and train because the, the VA's opposition to service dogs has been that there's not enough research done on the topic to prove that they work. So this is a pilot program. Uh, the preliminary and interim studies have all been very good and said that they reduce suicidal ideation and reduce post-traumatic stress. And I think a little over 100 dogs have been placed thus far. So as long as it continues to be successful, I see no reason why the program won't be permanently authorized. And if someone can't get a dog via the VA, since there's only 100 and there's millions of veterans and maybe who knows how many hundreds of thousands might desire one of these dogs, is there... Right other options to acquire a service-trained dog? Yeah. Um, well, the, the whole reason the PAWS Act exists is because nonprofits like Canines for Warriors and Labs for Liberty, Warrior Canine Connection, all came together and said, look, we're seeing this massive need in the veteran community. And they place hundreds and thousands of dogs every year with veterans in need. So absolutely. The problem is with 
nonprofit-based budgets and the need, the wait times can sometimes be over a year. So that was the whole point of the PAUSE Act initially is to provide grant funding to these organizations so that they can help offset and and get more to economies of scale doing this using federal dollars. We're speaking with Cole Lyle. He is executive director of the Veterans Advocate Group Mission Roll Call. And now there is the SAVES Act, not to be confused with the SAVE Act without an S. That's a different thing. But the SAVES with an S Act in the Senate would increase the funding. Tell us more about that one. Yeah, so the original version of the PAUSE Act that I wrote uh, back in 2015 was essentially the SAVES Act. It was, you know, we want to just provide direct grant funding to the Department of Veterans Affairs to give uh, Congress, meaning Congress wants to provide that funding to, to the Department of Veterans Affairs so that they can in turn, much like they're doing now with the Parker Gordon Fox grant program, provide grants to organizations that are in the suicide prevention business for veterans. And that would, again, help offset some of that donor funding and allow these nonprofits to get to economies of scale providing these dogs. Congress obviously can't do anything without compromise, even if it's dogs and veterans. So the original PAWS Act was compromised, and that was what passed in 2021. The SAVES Act basically just goes back and says, look, we want direct grant funding to organizations. We already know this works with the epidemic of veteran suicides being what it is right now. We don't have time to wait for another you know, two years for the PAWS Act pilot to be completed. Let's just do this now. Got it. And what are the prospects looking? How much is the backing uh, building up there? And is there a House and a Senate version? Yeah, I think it has bipartisan support in the House and the Senate, again, with Everything in Congress, it takes time, even unless it's like a you know crisis thing, like a CR or something that's politically necessary. So I think it stands a good chance of passing. It's just the matter of can we get the authorization and the appropriation so it's not an unfunded mandate at VA and so that the VA will, will pass it. The problem with this in particular is that a lot of people that run the Veterans Health Organization, while they are sympathetic to the suicide prevention problem, they view service dogs and kind of some other holistic approaches to, to mental health with a wary eye because they spent years of their lives and hundreds of thousands of dollars going to medical school learning the traditional approaches. So, you know, Congress and veteran advocacy groups have really tried to to drag them kicking and screaming to accept service dogs as an option. But I think we're getting there and I think it'll happen soon. Well, we know the VA is testing LSD in other domains and also they've accepted acupuncture some years ago. Yeah. So I guess there's hope for anything. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't think we'd get to the Overton window of, uh, of, of LSD for post-traumatic stress, but we are here. So, you know, there is hope for different levels of holistic support, and service dogs can be a great option to that end for suicide prevention and for reducing symptoms of depression, post-traumatic stress, even veterans that have physical you know, limitations to movement, obviously seeing eye dogs, but a veteran who's an amputee that needs a dog that's trained to go retrieve things for them and bring it back or turn lights on or things like that, they can be incredibly helpful and supportive in a number of different ways. And how are you doing these days? You know, I'm I'm okay. I, I lost Kaya back in February, you know, and, and it remains to be seen whether or not I'll get another service dog. I'm certainly going to get another dog one way or the other, but I haven't really seen a recurring of my symptoms that necessitated Kaya. So if that changes, I you know, I'll probably get another service dog, but that sure. remains to be seen. Well, the loss of a dog, whether it's a suicide prevention dog or any other dog, is real loss. And so we, we yeah. sympathize and we know what you're going through. Cole Lyle is executive director of Mission Roll Call. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, retired Army Major General Tammy Smith felt for the first time that she could lead her team authentically. Smith, a longtime leader and one of the military's highest-ranking openly gay officers, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share her perspective on collaborative and genuine leadership. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by retired U.S. Army Major General Tammy Smith. Major General Smith, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Shane, it's great to talk to you this morning. Your career in the military spans more than 30 years. Was there ever a moment or point in your career that changed your trajectory, and and what was that? I have a very unique one that occurred that did change my trajectory in many ways, and that is at my about 25th year of service, um, the law known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell that prohibited people who identified as gay from serving in the military, that was repealed, and now you could be open in the military. And soon after that happened, I married Tracy, my wife, and I was also notified I'd been selected for promotion to Brigadier General. And at that time, there had been no general or admiral who had come out or identified their family in any way that you would, you would know that they were gay. And so just by timing, I ended up being the first openly gay general in the U.S. military. And what changed for me in that is I still had all the things that I had to do, of course, as a general, which was a lot of hard work that went into that. But for the first time in my life, I was able to lead authentically. 25 years, I had compartmentalized a part of me, and I had hidden things, and I had not been my full self at work, and I had not been my full self with my coworkers. And the repeal of that law and the opportunity then to be the sort of LGBTQ champion in the Department of Defense as a senior leader, what that did is it got me closer to my authentic leadership style and my authentic self because I was more comfortable in my own skin and I wasn't looking over my shoulder at all times thinking that I might have said something that would reveal what my true life was and then lead to my dismissal from the military. Having that weight off of my shoulders, not having to hide who I was at work, made me such a better leader than I had been in the 25 years that I had served previously. It's fascinating to hear your story about that because I was alive during all that and followed it as well. It's a a wonderful thing. Your career included a lot of firsts. You were the first female general officer, as you said, um, to serve in the 8th Army headquarters level position. Uh, You already talked about being um, the first LGBTQ general and flag officer. How does being first, how did that influence your leadership style? I was first in a lot of places through no fault of my own uh, by virtue of having joined the military in the 80s when there weren't a lot of women who were choosing that as a career path. So there were many things, even as a young person, where I would show up and I would be the only 
woman who was in that particular unit or doing that particular type of training. And what you get as a first is you, you assume this mantle of being a role model for, I don't know if it's your, your group or yourself. And in these roles of first, I would have to say that complete competence was always expected because you were elevated a bit and people noticed you more because they knew you as the first. And so you, you just gained extra attention in that. But with that, that attention brought a great deal of responsibility. And you've said in the past that your interest in leadership dates all the way back to high school when you first joined Future Farmers of America. And how did that early education, that organization, change your path later in life? Future Farmers of America, while it's certainly to teach people about agriculture, but it's also it teaches people to be leaders so that in the agricultural world, people entering into that as an industry have the skills uh, to be leaders in that world. And I loved learning about speaking. I loved learning about being on a team. There were many things that I learned about leadership early in high school through FFA that suited me well. They are skills that I used all the way up through two-star general. And one of the one that jumps out the most at me is communication. I mean, we already talked about how it's important to be competent, but sometimes your competence comes from the presence that you project, and a lot of that presence comes from how you are able to communicate. So in times when I had uncertainty, I could convey confidence through my communication skills in a way that would get me through some ambiguity and things would turn out all right. But those skills go back. Those are base skills that I learned way back in high school and through my association with FFA. It, it's really great and, and refreshing to hear you meld those two concepts of confidence and competence because really both are required for um, expansion as a professional but also into leadership roles. I think so because if you're if you're the leader in the role, people want to trust, and so your competence certainly informs a bit of that trust. But your ability to communicate that and to speak to your team in a language that your team understands and to be able to adjust for that, I think that that informs that trust a great deal, which is what produces the results: is the trust within the team. Excellent, excellent. Uh, what's one piece of advice that you would go back? And tell yourself if you were starting uh, again in your career. When I started my career, of course, while I certainly had some skills, I I wasn't a rounded, informed, wise leader of any sort. And I think that people have a leadership style that suits their personality uh, until they learn more skills. And for me, I was a collaborative leader. And I always have been a collaborative leader, but right from the beginning about what I would tell myself to do differently. Sometimes when you are a young leader with a team with direct responsibility and direct reports, sometimes collaborative leadership feels to the team like you can't make a decision. Sometimes at that level of leadership, what the team needs is for you to just tell them what you want done by what time. And so... I'm going to say that I wasn't as effective as a younger leader in those situations where I was in these direct leadership roles 
because my tendency towards collaboration um, frustrated the team a bit. But when we jump ahead 25, 30 years, collaboration in the willingness to take a little bit more time with decisions that impact things on a longer timeline, those are exactly the skills that you need. So I would tell my younger self, be a little bit more direct, have a bit more awareness of where you are in the structure of the organization and the timelines that you're working in, and don't be afraid to be a little bit more direct um, as a young leader, even if your natural style is a bit more collaborative. That is excellent. And as somebody who's looked at and studied leadership over the years, there are many different leadership styles, everything, uh, many different formally studied leadership styles <clears throat> and collaboration, situational. I, 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 I love how you put it in context. It's not that one is good or bad, but depending upon your role and where you are in your career and those who uh, work for and with you, yeah. you can change to you, meet the needs. You definitely can. And the whole timeline is important when you are choosing your leadership style to get the results that you want, because it's all, of course, results-driven. And in some cases, and this was true in military leadership and true in, in many places, is sometimes the urgency of the decision doesn't allow for the collaboration because a missile is coming in or you know something, something is timed in, in a financial type of way and you have to hit a particular timing point. And so you've, you've got to make these decisions quickly. But sometimes making quick decisions, I, I talk often that it's easy to make a decision. It's harder to make a good decision. And you have to take into consideration the timeline that your decision is going to impact, and that will influence the style of leadership that you choose to come to that decision point, if you can kind of follow my logic there. I think it's fascinating. And... and Maybe what you're also saying is that part of leadership, um, a, a never-to-be-forgotten dynamic, is, is judgment. You know, there's a judgment component to all of this. that You just mentioned you're, you're um, making decisions using judgment as far as what's the best leadership role for this moment, for this decision. Yeah, I think there is a lot of judgment in that, and it goes back to that quest for competence, because as your skills improve, your judgment will improve because you've, you've peeked around the corner a little bit, you've been exposed to more things, and you are able to exercise judgment in a way that would have been impossible when I first started. Um, I think that that experience certainly informs judgment, which is why sometimes it when you're looking at somebody at the executive level, it looks so easy for them. You know, they see the big pieces earlier. That's because for probably 30 or 40 years, they've been looking at all the little pieces. And in some of this, then their judgment becomes almost intuitive to them because of the experience that they had gathered over that time frame. Perfect. What, <clears throat> is there a figure, either from your personal life or maybe in history, that has been an inspiration, that has inspired your leadership style? It's somebody who no one has probably heard of, and that's my brigade commander, Colonel Pullen, who I was exposed to early in my career as an officer. He was a Vietnam veteran, and in his role as brigade commander, what he wanted to teach all of us 
was attention to detail for consequential decision-making. And so he would ask very specific questions, such as when you get to the rifle range and you offload the buses, which side of the bus are the soldiers going to come off of? Because then that was whether or not you might need a road guard to cross the road over to the range and that sort of thing. But what he would tell us is that leaders will make life and death decisions based on the information that you provide them. So make sure that your information is correct when you provide it to them. And that stuck with me throughout my career is that when I was either informing a decision maker or if I was the decision maker, the question from Colonel Poland always came up is like, is that what you think or is that what you know? Tell me how you know it. Meaning, did you see it? Did you touch it? Did you read the same report? And, and just to understand that, especially in the military, that line of work, that the decisions that are often made are, are literally life and death types of decisions. Excellent. Excellent advice. Um, General Tammy Smith, it's been an honor and a privilege to meet you and talk with you and, and listen to you share uh, your leadership journey with us. Thank you very much for your time. It's great to talk to you. Thanks. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we will talk to you next time on Lessons in Leadership podcast. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.